0: Let's open the Word of God to Acts chapter 2, where we have the history of the day of Pentecost. The date is around June 1st, in the year 30 AD. Jesus died about 50 days earlier, thus the name Pentecost, (laughs) Penta, like our Pentagon, Penta, though, with an E for 50 days after Passover. And Jerusalem would be destroyed in 40 years. The changes that occurred this day with the immediate and then later results make it a transcendent day in world history. Amen. The explosion of Christianity. There were 120 right. in the upper room after Jesus rose from the dead. 120 in the city of Jerusalem out of a population of a million there for the Passover and the uh, Feast of Pentecost. This chapter includes directly or indirectly the great mystery of godliness that the Bible tells us is without controversy the greatest information ever conveyed on earth. Amen. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up into glory. Six statements of fact that are without controversy, the most important information ever conveyed on this planet and the greatest events that ever took place here on this earth. And Lord, we thank you that we know them and that we love them. The drama of Acts chapter 2, the results, the details of this one chapter are unprecedented in the Bible's pages. There's no other chapter quite like it. You know I sent you a table with over 60 points of doctrine and practice that are either introduced or implied by this chapter alone. Acts chapter 2. It's the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of Christianity. 2.2 billion in the world today claim to be Christian. Most of them are seriously mixed up and confused. And when I say most, I mean 99 plus percent. But still, they are following this religion in error. The religion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, represented by this church at this time, exploded 26 times in size before noon, and then exploded again many more times before evening, because Acts chapter 3 happened that afternoon, and there were 5,000 more men converted without women and children being counted. Anyone ignorant of this chapter has missed a variety of earth's greatest blessings, An explanation for world history. The Lord Jesus Christ at this stage, the kingdom of Jesus Christ at this stage was very fragile, very weak, very confused, and very fearful and without much reason for much admiration. But what a change took place. What a change took place in the day of Pentecost. The Lord Jesus Christ had taken his throne in heaven and he was about to use his rule to benefit his church and he poured out gifts from heaven. He sent ministerial gifts. He sent the Holy Spirit down and empowered these fishermen, backwoods rednecks, from the area of Galilee. As soon as they opened their mouths, they knew that they were Galileans. They made fun of them. Look at verse seven. Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? They don't even know how to speak our language. How are they preaching in all these different languages of the world in which we were born? We know those languages and we know what they sound like when they're fluently preached and it's being fluent, they're, they're being fluently used right now by Galileans, uneducated Galileans. Right. Oh yes, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This chapter should have a profound effect on your life. Embrace it, prepare for it, learn it, emulate it, and promote it with me. We've covered three lessons so far. We've, went, we've worked our way through the first 21 verses. The first lesson in the first four verses was the spirit of Pentecost. Jesus, according to his promise, poured out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had never dwelt among men like this. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a force field. It's not energy. It's him. Right. It's the candlestick that's in our church, which Jesus Christ threatens to take him away as Revelation 2.5 warned the church at Ephesus. But the first thing we want to learn is the spirit of Pentecost. Is the Holy Spirit being given? Jesus said, right Shane? Jesus said it is expedient for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come. The apostles were all worked up, and I would have been worked up too if I knew that Jesus was going to be taken away from me after three and a half years of traveling around Judea, Samaria, and Galilee with him. He's going to leave. And so Jesus said, if I leave, I will send a comforter to be with you always. Right. And so the Holy Spirit has been here for 2,000 years in his churches and with believers who have not grieved him, who have not quenched him. There is power of personal reassurance and intimate relationship with God through God being in us. In bed last night, the Lord just kept hitting me with two verses that we know in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen. What price did he pay for our bodies? The blood of his Son and the body of his Son. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit, and so my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's a disgusting thought in some respects. It's a glorious blessing in another respect. And our church is the habitation of the Holy Spirit. And so what happened in the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit was given God's presence on earth, no longer dwelling above that four-foot, four-and-a-half-foot box called the Ark of the Covenant that had those two, cherubim, one on each end, overshadowing it, where God dwelt in the Old Testament. And and one high priest, one time a year, got to go in there very fearfully with blood to put on that mercy seat, because that's the mercy seat. Well, how do we get mercy? We can go straight into the presence of God through the access of the Holy Spirit and the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are the sons of God. He's our father, and he tells us to come boldly. And so we're blessed by the, the Holy Spirit. That was the first lesson. Then we got the lesson in verses 4 through 13 of how the Holy Ghost was evident in these 120. Boys, girls, men, women, slaves, masters of slaves, Scythians, barbarians, Greeks, Jews, proselytes, anybody that was in that assembly got the Holy Spirit. Men, women, and they all spoke in different languages and they declared the wonderful works of God. And they did it fluently in all the languages that these men had been born in that were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. There was this huge assembly there. These men were born in different places. It tells us in verse 6, well, verse 5 tells us they were out of every nation under heaven. Verse 6 tells us that they heard them speak in their own language, and they were amazed, and they marveled. And then it lists at least 15 different language groups in verses 9 through 11. And they were all amazed, and some said, What meaneth this? What is going on in the city of Jerusalem? This is unheard of. Unprecedented. I say transcendent event. What's going on? God is changing his worship from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and given the power of the Spirit of God on earth, for the sake of the glorified, risen, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ sitting on his throne. Others said, these men are drunk with new wine. That's in verse 13. Others mocking, they are there observing with these two things, their eyes and their ears. They can see, they can hear these men that have flames. They have fires burning on their heads, and they have... Vo- voices that are Galilean with a Galilean accent and they know they're Galileans but they're declaring fluently in their languages in which they were born the wonderful works of God and yet there'll always be scorners. Right, right. You preach the truth right. and there'll be scorners that'll say these men are drunk with new wine. And so then we came to verses 14 through 21 last Lord's Day. Peter stood up, the man that was so afraid and terrified of a maid that he had denied Jesus Christ how much, how, how much earlier? Fifty days. Fifty days earlier he had denied Jesus Christ. Now he's totally different. He stands up and he declares to the gathered assembly what we find there in verses 14 through 21. Right. All you men that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto me. Hearken to my words. I'm a fisherman from Galilee. I'm uneducated. I'm a backwoods redneck. But I have something to tell you. We are not drunk because it's 9 a.m. in the morning and men don't get drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning. Second, this, what you're seeing and hearing, fulfills the prophecy of Joel from Joel chapter 2, and he quotes Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. This is a man who didn't understand why Jesus had to die. This is a man that Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan in Matthew chapter 16. Now he is opening up scripture and opening it up beautifully. And we got to the end of that prophecy in verses 17 and 18 is the prophecy of Joel that God would pour out his spirit on sons, daughters, men, young, old, and in every status, servant and masters of servants. They were all going to get the spirit and they all got it on this occasion. Then verses 19 and 20, I'm going to show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And the great and notable day of the Lord was 70 AD, 40 years away, in which Jesus Christ would destroy the Jewish nation. The great and notable day of the Lord. And we spent much time showing that Malachi and John the Baptist and Jesus had spoken about the great and notable day of the Lord being the destruction of Jerusalem. This is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. This was something imminent upon these men that this warning by John the Baptist and Jesus and this outpouring of the Spirit was right in front of. This didn't warn them about the second coming of Jesus Christ. If that's true, we need this kind of an outpouring every generation. But this was a particular warning to these people uh, from the, from the par- parables that I've just read to you this morning, Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 22, and then the proof is verse 40 of this passage, Acts 2, 40, where Peter, with many other words, many other words did he dedicate to this task, save yourselves from this untoward generation. There is something that's going to happen to this generation, and deservedly so, they had crucified the Lord of glory. God was going to destroy them for crucifying his son. You do not mess with the Lord Jesus Christ and you do not neglect the Lord Jesus Christ because there's a God in heaven that loves his son and will defend his son. Let's love the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's kiss the son as Psalm 2 and verse 12 tells us. And so the great notable day of the Lord there in verse 20 is the destruction of Jerusalem, which is warned about throughout the Bible in both testaments. And verse 40 helps confirm it. If you mark up in your Bible, you might want to put 240 right beside the great notable day. And at 240, where it says, save yourselves from this untoward generation, that is an obnoxiously wicked generation, untoward, you can put 220. And it says in verse 21, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Was there a calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved men from 70 AD's destruction? Absolutely, Jesus had told them. When you see the armies encompass Jerusalem, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, and you should flee to the mountains. Don't worry about your stuff. Haste should be the day, the, the word of the day, and you get to the mountains and protect yourselves. And they did. Eusebius, Epiphanius, and other historians of the first few centuries document that no Christians were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem. 1.1 million Jews were killed, many of them by starvation. Women ate their children. Josephus knew the names of some of the noble women that ate their children in the siege by the Romans. Justified because Deuteronomy 28 had said, this is how bad it would be when God judged Israel. Deuteronomy 28 describes the delicate, and the delicate woman that is so delicate, she doesn't even like to put the sole of her foot on the ground would eat her children that came out between her own knees. The Bible says that. Right. But there weren't Christians killed because they fled to the mountains across the Jordan River in an area called Pella. You can go look it up. I love living today. Everyone can look up anything I say and prove whether it's true or not. It's called the flight to Pella. Look it up. Google it. Flight to Pella. Why do we have Pella windows? Ever heard of Pella windows? They come from Pella, Iowa. Why is it named Pella in Iowa? They're Dutch reformers, the Dutch reformed men that came over here. They know why it's named that. Google it and find out that it's named for the place where God's people went and hid because they were serious, dedicated Christians there that understood Bible prophecy, which men today don't understand. Nobody would name anything Pella today. They wouldn't even know what Pella means unless they were naming it after Pella Windows, which named it after Pella of Perea, of Decapolis, across the Jordan River from Jerusalem. Thank you, Lord. Instead of looking at those verses, the charismatics go into this verse. Jimmy Swagger gets up, pulls his tie down, wipes his brow, and says... I will pour out of my spirit. Because of the future tense words in verse 17. I will pour out of my spirit. And Jimmy Swaggart thinks God is pouring out his spirit on Jimmy. Benny does the same thing. Kenneth Copeland does the same thing. But Peter said, This is that. What happened on the day of Pentecost fulfilled that prophecy of Joel. It wasn't fulfilled 15 years later, 100 years later, or 2,000 years later. It was fulfilled 2,000 years ago, and they're all wrong. They're all babbling gibberish by a different spirit because Paul said another spirit was coming to promote another Jesus and another gospel. Right, right. And so we come to our passage. Lord, bless the little review. We come to our section. Let's cover verses 22 through 24 right now. Peter is still preaching. He has explained on two accounts about their speaking in tongues. One, they're not drunk because it's 9 a.m. Verse 15. Two, this is fulfilling a prophecy of Joel, so you shouldn't be surprised. And that's what preachers do. They take the word of God and show its fulfillment. And that's what Peter's doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So now we come to verse 22, and he's still preaching. And let's get his summary statement of the gospel. Verses 22 through 24. having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Amen Amen and amen. What a summary of what we believe. In three verses, ye men of Israel, Peter is not afraid. Peter is about to tell them that they are wicked men because they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. He was once afraid that since they're going to crucify Jesus, they want to crucify me too. Well, now he's accusing them of being wicked in crucifying Jesus and he's not afraid. Tradition tells us, though the Bible doesn't, the Bible just tells us, Jesus told Peter one time in the last two chapters of John, Peter, there's a time coming in which men are going to do things to you that you don't want them to do to you. And they're not going to ask you for your permission, they're just going to do it to you. And tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, but when Peter was crucified with the Romans, he wouldn't wouldn't let them crucify him right side up he had to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified the way that his Lord was crucified. Now that's not a fearful man. Right. That's just tradition. We don't care whether it's true or not. It just is true that Jesus said they're going to they're put you to death in a way that you don't want to go. And they're just going to do it to you anyway. When he had asked about how John was going to die and who was going to die first, John or himself. And the Lord dealt with him that way. In that particular place. But look at this Peter. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Notice how the gift of tongues got everyone's attention. There's a huge crowd that is wondering, What meaneth this? That was their question over there in verse 12. What meaneth this? What does this mean? They were, they were gathered together and they were worshipping inside the city walls of Jerusalem because of the feast days of, the, of God's religion that had been in place for 1500 years. There are three dispensations in world history. 2500 years from Adam until Moses. It's called the age of the patriarchs, the fathers. Abraham could build his own altar, he was his own priest, he could offer his own animals, and he led worship. They had no scriptures. It was all oral tradition if you want to use those sick words, or it was inspiration by God because Abraham was a prophet and Abraham had visions and Abraham had dreams. And so God communicated that to him. Then for 1,500 years, until 4,000 years after creation, when Jesus died on the cross, we had Moses' religion. And now it's being changed to the New Testament, which we've had for 2,000 years. This earth is 6,000 years young. You can forget all the billions and trillions and anything else that they come up with. It's 6,000 years young. We are young earth believers because the Bible tells us that. It gives us a chronology from Adam. It tells us when he had a son and how old he was when he had that son and then how old that son was when he had a son. And it just gives us a chronology all the way through the pages of the Bible to get us to Christ. And we know that he was 2,000 years ago. And so once we're connected that way, we know that we're in a 6,000-year young earth. But what a situation. The gift of tongues, which is Speaking wonderful things about God fluently in another language that is present there. Right. A person that knows that language is present there. It is a sign for unbelievers. The New Testament tells us that. The Old Testament tells us that. It's a sign for unbelievers to get their attention and it certainly did its job right here. It is not, a th- it is not for a thrill of believers. Charismatics use it today They just want to go off babbling for the personal thrill they get of showing somebody else that they have some so-called spirit. But that's never why it was given. We went over that already last Lord's Day. Tongues were never intended for thrill-seeking by believers as they're abused by Pentecostals and Charismatics. It is a great and precious privilege to hear God's words. Our God has greatly convicted me this week with the, words, with the words of hear these words in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Right. Hear these words. Peter, an uneducated, redneck fisherman from Galilee. Yes, I keep repeating that. Because he wouldn't have known anything by himself except how to put a net down in water and catch a few fish in a small lake called the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't big like the, lake, the great lakes that are around the state of Michigan where I came from. The Sea of Galilee be swallowed up in one day's evaporation from the Lake of Michigan. If you go look at the size of those lakes. But there's Peter. Hear these words. He is about to lay some truth on these people that they've never heard before. And these are God's people. These are God's people that have a Bible that has 39 books in it, the Old Testament. These are God's people that have the priests of God ministering for them at the altar of God in the temple of God in Jerusalem. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Oh, yes. Do you appreciate what you hear and see? Matthew chapter 13 and verse 17 says Many prophets and many righteous men have desired to hear the things that you hear and to see the things that you see and have not been allowed to do so. Many righteous men, righteous men of the Old Testament, Never got to see the Son of God or to hear about Him and to see the things that He did and to hear the things that He did. And we have seen it and we have heard it. Thank you, Lord. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles. Hear these words. Preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world. We are pagans. Our ancestors were all pagans. God hadn't shown our ancestors anything except the creation of the heavens and the earth. And that didn't do it for us because we were depraved pagans. We worshipped all kinds of cr- crazy, foolish things. We set ourselves against the God of heaven. Right. Hear these words, Peter said. There in verse 22, Oh, thank you, Lord. Mm-hmm. Even under the New Testament, much of the earth's population since Pentecost has not heard of Jesus Christ. You've heard of Jesus Christ. Who made those arrangements? Why haven't you heard about Hare Krishna and Hari Rama of the Hindus? Why aren't you following Mohammed? Why? Why aren't you following the Great Spirit and smoking yourself in a tent with buffalo chips? Why? Why have you heard about Jesus Christ? It is not because we're more intelligent. It is not because we're more diligent. It's not because we're more faithful. It's not because we're less sinful. It's because of the grace of God. And so when a man like Peter stands up and says, hear these words, we better hear them. And we better appreciate them. And we better pay attention to them. We better prepare for them. We better retain them. I think someone said that this morning. Before, when we had prayer, let every man take heed how he hears. There's four results. You don't listen attentively, the devil snatches away the word. You worry about the things of this life and thorns grow up and choke out the word. You're fearful of men. And so someone tells you that you're being a little extreme in your religion, attending that church. And so you wither away and you don't bear fruit. Then there's good ground that brings forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. That's the parable of the sower. And it's concluded with the words to his disciples, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear because we all know that we have heard that word of God all four ways at times in our lives. But today's the day to hear it with fruitfulness. Hear these words, Peter says to us as well. What authority Peter had. He was such a timid man 50 days earlier, but he's timid no more. The identity of Jesus of Nazareth was well known. They knew about Jesus of Nazareth. He had been performing many, many miracles, hundreds and thousands of miracles for... Three and a half years. And so he says in verse 22, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is where he came, that's where he was raised. That's why Jesus was called a Nazarene. Jesus was not a Nazarite. A Nazarite was John the Baptist. You don't drink wine, you don't eat raisins. You can't have grape juice, you can't have anything to do with the grape, you can't cut your hair, and you can't get near a dead body to touch it. That was John the Baptist. He went around with a leather girdle and snacked on grasshoppers and honey. Wild honey and grasshoppers. Jesus was a Nazarene from Nazareth, and so he was known that way. And Paul, the Bible says, was a a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. If people want to accuse us of being part of a cult, we'll say, thank you very much, we are. We're part of the cult of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the cult of the Nazarenes. Now, there's a denomination today called the Nazarenes. We don't have anything to do with them. They've just taken that word out of the Bible and and used it for themselves. But it's Jesus of Nazareth, and that's what it means. Jesus is Jehoshua in the Hebrew language that comes into Greek and then into English as Jesus. Mary never called her boy Jesus. She called him Jehoshua, which is Jehovah is the Savior. Jehovah is salvation. Jeho, Jehoshua. Jehovah is salvation. And because the angel had told Joseph, Mary's going to bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, which is Jehoshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior because Jesus is Jehovah in the flesh. And that's where the name comes from. And they knew Jesus of Nazareth. There were other Hebrew boys named Joshua, But this one was from Nazareth and he was well known because he was a man approved of God. Now a brother this morning was all worked up like I was worked up. So to do him some honor, he was worked up about a man approved of God. Jesus is a man. God is not sitting at the right hand of God. A man is sitting at the right hand of God is what the brother wanted to remind me of this morning. And I love being reminded of such things because Jesus is a man. He's our brother. We're joint heirs with him. He can relate to us. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He wept when his friend Lazarus died. When our dear ones die and we weep, the Lord Jesus Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. There's a man at the right hand of God. Now that makes it really painful for the devil to know that Satan has been defeated by a man. As we discussed at breakfast yesterday morning, a few of us, the devil only needed 15 to 30 seconds with our first Adam, and he had already got him into sin and ruined our entire race. But we have a second Adam that our trust is in, and his time on the cross was enough to destroy the works of the devil. And he's going to throw that devil in the lake of fire. But a man's going to throw him into the lake of fire. The devil's the most powerful created being in the universe except for a man approved of God, the second Adam. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these words that you inspired by the power of your spirit upon this fisherman Peter to preach this way. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. You know what is circulating, that in Galilee... And in parts of Samaria, and around Samaria, and beyond Jordan, and in Judea, and in Jerusalem, this Jesus of Nazareth has cast out the devils, has cast out devils, caused the blind to see, helped the lame to walk, raised the dead, calmed storms, and fed 5,000 with a little lad's lunch. And so on and so forth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that did all these miracles before men. There are no contemporary books written by anyone at that time against the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it is only today that men want to write and say that there weren't miracles back then. Isn't that convenient that 2,000 years after the fact, they want to try to undo eyewitness accounts that changed the world? Because there weren't any then. You know, the Romans' best effort was to pay a large sum of money to get their guards to say that the apostles came and stole the body away. That's the best they could do. They couldn't undo all the miracles. The Jews knew that he had performed the miracles. They just rejected him anyway. Thank you, Lord. Verse 23 him, Peter tells these Jews, him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You took Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, and killed him. But God wasn't disappointed. God wasn't surprised. God wasn't overthrown. You didn't hold anything up. You didn't hurt anything. You didn't restrain anything because that was God's determinant counsel. Right. God, into eternity, had sat in counsel for our understanding. He's infinite in wisdom and he's eternal. He doesn't have to sit in counsel like we do. We have to plan a meeting, set a meeting, put it on our daytimer, and get there in time to have a meeting. God didn't have to do that, but he puts it in terms for us. He had a counsel. And his counsel was to determine what was going to happen. And his determination was that he would send his son and his son would die by crucifixion. So he couldn't die a Jewish death. If he died a Jewish death, how would he have died? Stoning. Stoning. What would have happened during the stoning process? Bones would have been broken. He couldn't have a bone broken. So the determinate counsel of God took care of all the details. And so when Pilate said to the Jews you go ahead and take and kill him. They said, we can't. We're not authorized by the Roman government to do it, so you've got to do it. So he ended up being crucified, hanging on a tree. He had to hang on a tree because the Old Testament had said the curse of sin is upon a man that hangs on a tree. Hanging was a cursed way of dying, and Jesus was hanging on a tree. I love the trees in the Bible, don't you? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that our fathers partook of. And because our, fa- our father Adam took part of that tree, we couldn't have the tree of life. The tree of life was there. Adam and Eve could have eaten from the tree of life every single day and lived forever. But the tree of life's in heaven. It's bearing fruit, 12 fruits, 12 months of the year, constantly. The tree of life is there. The book of Revelation tells us, and we're going to be eating it. Do you know how we got there? By a third tree. Jesus was hung on a tree. Right. And the Bible says it just that way with those words. The terminate counsel of God, the God of our the God of glory, our Lord Jehovah, our God has never been surprised or ever reacted in time to men. He doesn't react to men, he determines what's going to happen by men through men for men. Thank you, Lord. I can't believe what happened in this country in 2001. 911 the most knowledgeable men the, the the nation's pastor Billy Graham not understanding what's happened I just don't understand how this could happen I don't understand an event like this well you should understand an event like this God gave this nation the tiniest of tiniest of tiniest of tokens of judgment for its wickedness right. Jesus dealt with situations Jesus dealt with a tower that fell over in Siloam it's Luke chapter 13 and I how many died there? 10, 11, 13, some number like that died when a tower fell over and they came to Jesus and Jesus said, what, do you think those men in Siloam were more wicked than the, the rest of you? Except you repent, you're all going to perish the same way. That is what this nation needed to hear 16 years ago in 2001. Except we repent, we're all going to perish likewise. Because that's how Jesus preached. That event wasn't some accident. There are no accidents. What happened in Las Vegas wasn't an accident. The Lord just withdrew his hand, restraining man, and let that man kill some people out there and wound some other people for the praise of his glorious honor in governing the universe. Because Psalm 76 and verse 10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. God is able to restrain men, and God is able to not restrain men, and his foreknowledge is is, is his knowledge, if, if I do not restrain them, this is what they will do. And so he lets them go. God was able to take Abimelech and Pharaoh. Abraham and Sarah had lied to both of these kings, and said, Sarah is Abraham's sister. God wouldn't let either man touch Abraham's wife. So God can restrain a man from touching another man's wife. Did God restrain David from touching Uriah the Hittite's wife? No. Why didn't he? Because it was his purpose for the life of David. And he got great glory out of it. And through that woman came two sons, Solomon and Nathan. And we have both the genealogies of Mary and the genealogy of Joseph. They came through different sons of David. Thank you, Lord, for your determinate counsel. Amen. Do you know what his determinate counsel is determined? If you're, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, his determinate counsel determined that you would believe on him. Because if he hadn't sent his regenerating grace and power into your life, you wouldn't believe. That's right. And so it's his determinate counsel that took care of all the details. Right. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your determinate counsel. Amen. God wasn't surprised in the Garden of Eden. Was, is God able was, is God able to put up a fence around Eden to keep the devil out? Yep. Of course he was. He let the devil come in. Did God know that if he gave Adam and Eve one commandment, let the devil in, that they would follow that, the, the, the lies of the devil and eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yep. Absolutely. Was that part of his plan? Absolutely, from the beginning. He wasn't surprised a bit. Salvation has never been remedial. Salvation has been for the glory of God. Right. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Right. That's what the Bible teaches. Right. And so it says here, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Nothing, there was no surprise to God. All the details were taken care of. Every Bible prophecy was fulfilled. All the details, such as Him being stoned, That means crucified instead of stoned, crucified with criminals. The Old Testament had prophesied it. No bones broken, pierced in his side. Remember, the soldiers came around to break his legs so that he couldn't support himself any longer. and He suffocated very quickly. But he didn't have to break the legs of Jesus because he was already dead, but they pierced his side, and so the Bible says that they would pierce him. All that was taken care of in the way that God determined The crucifixion death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lots were cast for his raiment. He thirsted. His beard was plucked off. The death and burial and replacement of Judas took place around that. And the tomb of a rich man was where Jesus was buried. All of it by prophecy. The determinate counsel of God. Thank you, Lord. It was no surprise to him. He did it exactly as he wanted it. It's one of the ugliest scenes in human history. The stench of the blood. The flies. The noise. The sight. The grief. The pain. The pain. The wailing women, the cruelty, the monstrosity of a trial, Pilate knowing that he was an innocent man, all of it was terrible, and it pictured sin and the remedy for sin and the cure for sin and salvation from sin through Jesus Christ our Lord. God delivered him up for us all. Look what Romans chapter 8 says. Romans chapter 8. There's all kinds of places that we could turn All the details of who would be saved and how were decreed by God, by his determinate counsel. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 32. Everybody knows verse 28, all things work together for good to them that love God. Who loves God? To them who are the called according to his purpose. God has a purpose in men's lives, and he has a purpose in some men's lives because they are his elect. So Romans 8, 28, which everyone knows, it ends with men that are called according to his purpose. And verse 33 tells us another word for those men. They're God's elect. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? But I want verse 32. He that spared not his own son. This is God our Father in heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord Jehovah. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? everything necessary for eternal life will be freely given to us because, I mentioned this in my prayer earlier today, arguing from the greater to the lesser, if God gave His Son, He will certainly give us everything else that pertains to salvation. And that's what Romans 8.32 is. This is limited atonement. Jesus did not die for a single person that will not realize every spiritual blessing in heavenly places for eternity in heaven with God. Because he that spared on his own son will also freely give each of those that the son died for everything else freely. It's one of the proofs of limited atonement. Delivered by the determinate counsel of God. Back to Acts chapter 2. Back to Acts chapter 2. We could go to verses that speak about us being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and the purpose of God and salvation given to us before the foundation of the world. But that 23rd verse, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God's foreknowledge is his knowledge of what's going to play out in human history because of what he's determined will play out. Listen, if you set up one million dominoes and you set them up right, if you can't think that big, then let's think about 10. That Maybe your mind can get around 10. We have 10 dominoes and you set them up right and you know that if I push the first one, What's going to happen in number 10? Do you have foreknowledge of what's going to happen in number 10? Are you surprised by what's going to happen in number 10? No, No, because it doesn't fall down unless you push down number one, right? There's an infinite mind behind this entire universe that understands first causes, second causes, third causes, and the consequences of all causes, and he starts the first cause by creating the heavens and the earth and putting Adam and Eve in a garden where there were two trees, one they could have, one they couldn't have, and allowing the devil into that garden. And surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. You know, if you've got ten dominoes set up here and ten in the kitchen on the kitchen table, and you're in the den, when you push down number one here, nothing happens to the dominoes in in the kitchen. You've restrained your wrath from them by not pushing down number one in the kitchen. Enough explanation on that. There's a God behind the whole universe. You know, the whole they wring their hands. I don't know why it happened, I don't know how it happened. I don't believe in a God like that. they will say all kinds of crazy things. And without a God like that, who is in charge of this universe? It certainly isn't fate. It certainly isn't Allah. It certainly isn't Krishna. It's the God of heaven. And he's in charge of every event. He knows and governs every sparrow falling. He knows the hairs on our heads. And he's predestinated us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Those are the greatest acts of predestination in the, in the universe. To take sinners and determine their destiny beforehand to be in heaven forever. Verse 24. Whom God. Well, let's get back into verse 23 for just a second. By wicked hands have crucified and slain. Ye have taken. God delivered him. But you took him. You're the ones that are guilty. The beautiful thing about God's sovereignty is that God is sovereign and governs all events, and yet men are responsible for their actions because he doesn't force their will against their free choice. These men freely killed Jesus. God did not have to infuse in them a hatred for Jesus. They already had it. The man in Las Vegas, he didn't need hatred infused into him against anyone. He already had it. We all have within us enough innate wickedness that we would do anything if God withdrew his restraint. But he doesn't withdraw his restraint for his. And we pray for him to restrain us. We pray for him to confine us. We pray, and we've prayed today already, incline my heart after thy commandments. Make me go in the way of thy commandments, which is how David prayed, and incline not my heart after covetousness. Because that's where our heart wants to go. If the Lord lets go of us, all the goodies of this world is what we want. Right. But they were wicked, and God was right to judge them, though, because what they did, they did freely, though within God's overseeing government of the world, they did exactly what He intended they would do, what He had planned they would do. Everything operates according to the great purpose of God, who sees the end from the beginning. I think a young man read to us, Isaiah 46 and verse 10, that God sees the end from the beginning and declares those things which be not yet done as though they were. That's the God of the Bible. And so everything we do, James chapter 4 tells us, everything we do we should submit to the will of God with this kind of a prayer. If the Lord will, this was for a business plan. James chapter 4, 13 through 15, a business plan. We're going to go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. I'm going to be a trader. I'm going to go to such and such a city and I'm going to profit. That was the business plan, strategic plan written down, I mean, in their minds, and, and James deals with it. Don't just make your business plan. When you make up your business plan, have this prayer. If the Lord will, right. we shall live. Right. <laughs> you know, business plans don't work very well when you're dead. Uh, the Bible's very practical. Yes. So here's a business plan. You can put it on your next one. You you that are in school, the next time you write a business plan, put a prayer at the end of it. Put the Bible reference. I know they don't like that when you put a source document of the only true book that's ever been written. But you can try it. Or those of you that work for companies that are in strategic planning or financial analysis, you could you could put those verses. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. You ain't going to do anything unless it's the Lord's will. Amen. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Yes. They could change the business plan the next day. Don't we all do that? Change the business plan, change the business plan again, revise the business plan, extend the business plan. We're going to stay there two years. We're going to go to a different city. We're going to buy and trade different things. But all of it is submissive to the will of God because it's his determinate counsel that determines all things. Right. Yes. And yet within that determinate counsel, we operate freely so that we are responsible for the choices we make. Romans chapter 9. We'll get off this point very quickly, but look at Romans 9. This is one of the most important verses in my conversion. Uh, And it was this point of doctrine that I'm dealing with right now. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. From what you just heard, if God is always accomplishing his purpose through Pharaoh and the ten plagues in Egypt, through the Jews crucifying Jesus Christ, If God is always accomplishing his purpose, how can he hold men responsible for their actions? Paul knew that you wanted to ask that question. Paul knew that I wanted to ask that question, so he asked that question for us both. It's in Romans 9, 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Paul is heading off our question. Notice the question marks there. Thou wilt say then unto me, here's what you're going to conclude about the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? How can God find fault since we're just fulfilling his will anyway? Do you want to hear the answer? Are you ready for the answer? Was I ready for the answer? It changed my life. It changed my life. I was 19 and it was Romans 9, 19. It changed my life 41 years ago. Here's the answer. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it? Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? There's the answer. You have asked an inappropriate question. It's above your pay grade. Shut up, sit down, and learn truth. Now, I'm talking to me, and I loved it. I love a God that tells me to shut up and sit down, but I don't have a right to ask him anything. I don't like being 5'9". Every time I meet another person that's over 6 foot tall, it bothers me. But you know, God chose me to be 5'9". Some of you know that. I'm terribly plagued with that worry. Not really. But it's a a point. He didn't ask me how tall I wanted to be. And do you know what it says in Isaiah chapter 45, and verse 7, where it deals with this same point of doctrine? there's a potter at a, at a spinning wheel and it makes a man without arms. Hey, you made me without arms. Does the clay ever cry that out to a potter? No, and neither should we. And God said, if you want to argue, then go argue with other potsherds of the earth. What's a potsherd? A broken piece of pottery. All we are, let's go, or, we can argue as broken pieces of pottery one to another, but don't argue with God. Okay, back to Acts chapter two. I'm sorry because I don't like to get behind in what what we need to accomplish, and it's time time to draw this to a close, but look at Acts chapter 2. We just covered that 23rd verse. They were wicked, and God was justified in destroying that nation because they did it maliciously, they did it intelligently, they did it willingly, they chose to kill Jesus. He gave them repeated opportunities to repent and to fall on him and be broken rather than to be ground to powder. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So you Jews, though you kill him, you were fulfilling the purpose of God, and you Jews, though you killed him, God raised him from the dead. Because it wasn't possible that death could hold Jesus Christ, because there were scriptures that said he had to rise again. And the argument here in this 24th verse is that because the Old Testament prophesied the Messiah would rise from the dead then death couldn't hold them. Right. Do you know what kind of a religion we have? The founder of our religion rose from the dead. Amen. Right. Medina is a city in Saudi Arabia. It has a green domed mosque. Do you know whose bones are under the green domed mosque in Medina? Yes. Muhammad, The founder of their great religion. Still dead. Bones there. Did he see corruption? He's been corrupting for 1,300 years. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Mohammed's been corrupting. There is no Allah, so we won't even deal with him. Allah is the moon god of the Arabians. Why do you think they put a symbol of him on every single mosque and on their flags? What does it look like? It's a crescent moon of the Arabians. You didn't like the sun if you were an Arabian. It's too hot. The moon's better. All they want to think about is being under palm trees with virgins in heaven. And would, you would too if you lived on sand and the heat had gone to your brain. But a founder of our religion, where's Joseph Smith of the Mormons? He's in Nauvoo, Illinois. Why? Because the men of Missouri came across the border in a, in a lynch mob and killed him in prison for practicing polygamy. Thank you, Lord, for the founder of our religion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hindus hallucinate about reincarnation. What a wonderful religion. You get to die over and over and over again. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for coming up with something better than that. Buddhists know their Buddha was cremated, but a right tooth is kept as a relic at the Temple of the Tooth. Oh, I'd like to go to the Temple of the Tooth to see the tooth of Buddha. Thank you, Lord. Do you know what kind of a religion we have? This is why Acts 2 is glorious. There were fishermen. Nobody in the world is going to listen to a fisherman except other fishermen with with ideas about bait and hooks and nets. Who's going to listen to fishermen about philosophy and about religion? With the gift of tongues, they will. With the healing of the lame man in chapter 3, they will. And look at the bold preaching. Look at the summary of our religion. God raised him up. He wasn't, it wasn't possible for him to be holden of death. Ellen G. White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist, is in her tomb in Battle Creek, Michigan, with a box of cornflakes. Don't push me or I'll go further than that. And you'll wish you hadn't pushed me. What a religion. The Seventh-day Ask me. Unbelievable. It's in your state. You can take a tour. You can go over there and find out why they ate cornflakes, why they invented eating tree bark in a bowl with milk poured over it for the first time in the history of the world and calling it food. And there comes carbohydrate addiction and diabetes epidemic because of the Seventh day Adventists. Nobody ever ate that kind of junk before the early 1900s with the Kellogg brothers that were Seventh day Adventists at their sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. Thank you, Lord. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, the first verse my parents taught me to memorize it. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned in that first man. That chapter is the doctrine of representation. In the first man, Adam sinned, we all die. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. One man. Why do babies die? Adam sinned. Ask anyone, why do babies... First of all, ask them this way, then you can really have fun with them. Do you believe in the age of accountability? Yes. What is it? Approximately 12. Then why do babies die under 12 years of age? They're not accountable because they're dying for Adam's sin. It's the doctrine of original sin. We know where sin came from. Evolutionists think in the crazy, hallucinatory mind that they have that life reproductive life sprang into existence from nothing. Why did it bring death with it? Where did death spring in? Where did sickness spring in? Where did decay spring in? Oh, surely, surely, if dense energy can create reproductive life of a butterfly, surely it can take care of that life and it would never die. Why does it die? Because it's under the bondage of corruption that the whole world is under. Amen. The whole creation groans in travail and pain until now. Romans chapter 8 tells us that, but there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ, who tore the bars away from his own tomb, is going to shout, Up! And every body in the ground is going to come up. Amen. The righteous and the wicked. One, gener- one resurrection of the righteous and The wicked. And he's going to deliver this creation from the bondage of corruption it's under. The bondage of corruption is the effect of sin on the whole world. Why do things rust? Where did rust come from, evolutionist? Where did rust come from? If you were able to evolve a man so intelligent that he's able to mine metals out of the ground, refine them, process them, and turn them into beautiful things like a Swiss watch, why do things run down and where does all that come from? Where do the laws of thermodynamics come from? They come from sin and God's judgment of this planet. But Jesus Christ is going to lift it because it's not possible that his universe is going to be holden of any such thing because he destroyed sin. Right. And we are going to be delivered into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Romans chapter 8. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Why do we get baptized? <laughs> Why do Baptists get baptized? You know, we get baptized a strange way. Ninety-five percent, two point one billion out of two point two billion Christians don't know how to baptize. Why do we baptize by immersion? Because we got to have a burial, and we got to have a resurrection. Amen. We have to show the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to show our burial. That if the Lord tarries and we all get buried and put in a cemetery, he is coming back and is going to raise us up again. That's two of the symbols of baptism for a Baptist. The third one is we bury our old lifestyle, the old man, to rise to walk in newness of life as a young brother exhorted this church just in the last couple of weeks. And so based on that resurrection, you know, a brother in this pulpit has said he's the first fruits of them that slept. Jesus is the first fruits. He rose from the dead, and he's going to raise all of us from the dead. And so we, we love to declare that when we get baptized. We're going to have a baptism next weekend, brethren. We're going to gather around that pool so that you can all see, and we're never going to have a baptistry up in the wall someplace behind the choir loft where nobody can see the person get buried. We want to get buried. We want to bury them to rise again in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was buried and rose again for us, and he is coming back to take us up out of cemeteries all over this planet or wherever our bodies might be and put them back together for the glory of God. This is the gospel summarized in verses 22 through 24. May Jesus Christ be praised.